My name is Peter. I'm uh, not like an official staff member here at the river. I've been a part of this church for a very long time. And um, every now and again, I get to preach. And uh, I'm very excited about being able to do this. It always gives me, um, makes me think about what I have to uh, talk about. And it makes me sort of work out stuff in my own life. So I'm hoping to be able to share a lot of that with you today. Um, I, you know, I basically, in my sort of day job, I'm a reporter, and um, so I sort of write this in my spare time, and uh, I was hoping to get a lot of it done yesterday, but then I went to a new Pilates class, and <laughs> this sort of like 75-year-old teacher, but she was amazing. She was like, she could do everything, and she did it so fast, and it was like an hour, and I w was destroyed, you know, I... <laughs> I, I came home and I just sort of like lay on the bed and just like zonked out completely. Um, and so if, if this, you know, if I'm sort of lag in the middle of this, that's, that's my excuse, okay, <laughs> is my Pilates class. Um, but but um, uh, uh, I, I also wanted to let you know about something else. Um, you know that Charles tells a lot of stories about the subway um, in his sermons. <laughs> uh, and I've always wondered whether he actually really does get the subway, you know. Does he just like draw on one experience that happened like eight years ago? <laughs> but this week I was wandering around Midtown and who did I bump into at the subway? <laughs> Charles Park. So all those subway stories you can now fully believe and embrace and apply to your life, okay? Okay? Okay, so what else has been going on? Well, we have this big controversy in the world of football, don't we? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about Colin Kaepernick, and he's a 49ers quarterback, and twice now he's refused to stand during the playing of the national anthem, and, is, and his, in his words, this is why he's not standing. People don't realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust. People aren't being held accountable for. And that's something that needs to change. Now, today I'm not going to focus on Kaepernick's core message, the thing that he's concerned about. What I wanted to start out looking at was the official response of the NFL. This is what the league said in a statement about Kaepernick's protest. Quote, players are encouraged but not required to stand during the playing of the national anthem. Okay? Players are encouraged but not required to stand during the playing of the national anthem. Now, let's contrast that with what the NBA says about the national anthem. Here's the text from its actual rule book. They actually have a rule on this. Players, coaches, and trainers are to stand and line up in a dignified posture along the sideline or on the foul line during the playing of the national anthem. So the NFL does not require standing, but the NBA's rule book appears to. The NFL has more room for maneuver. Now, clearly both organizations uh, believe that respect for one's country should be shown by standing when the national anthem is played, but only the NBA demands it. And I have no idea if the NFL's choice of words was like carefully written all those years ago or whenever it was written, and I have no un real under insight into why the NBA has stronger language, whether it was accidental or not, whether it would even enforce its rule book today if, if none standing happened at a basketball game. It has done in the past, by the way. But on the face of it, the NBA has what I might call a rules-based approach. It assumes that something is good and right, and then it makes compliance compulsory. You see that? 
you are to stand, okay? And I'm sure you have personal feelings on, on what the right approach is here, you know, whether standing to the national anthem is a must or merely an option. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to jump into that <laughs> right today. I'm going to let that lie. But the, but the question of when we should apply rules and when we should allow people more room for maneuver is a fascinating one, and it is central to what we're going to be focusing on today in our current sermon series, okay? So what we're trying to do in this quite short series is look at how our faith that we have, our style of faith, is influenced by our psychology, by, the, by our stage of psychological development. Now, um, we're going to sort of, as Charles started last week in this series, um, we're we, we sort of going to reference a framework, um, and I just want to make it clear what we're not doing with this framework, okay? We're absolutely not saying that faith is merely a psychological construct. We're not saying that. We're not, we are certainly not saying that some people are somehow better at faith because they're uh, more psychologically healthy. That would seem to go against much of the Gospels. We are definitely not saying that God is somehow less powerful than our psychological makeup, and what we're talking about today is not somehow baked into some, you know, like the official theology of the river. You know, that's not what, 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 what's sort of happening here, okay? So there's a lot of knots uh, that I wanted to get out of the way here. So, so, so what are we doing today? Now, we're looking at this interplay between our psychological stage of development and our faith. And I think this can be really helpful. Knowing ourselves, which is basically what psychology is, knowing ourselves has many beneficial real-world consequences. You know, last week, Charles outlined some of the tensions that underlie faith in, this, in his talk on this. He, he, he very adroitly addressed this balance between responsibilities and desires. We want this, but we have to do this. How do we, how do we find a tension that works for us in that, in that sort of seeming trade-off? And he showed how a healthy faith can give this life-giving balance between our responsibilities and our desires. And it was a really important sermon that if you didn't hear it, you definitely should. And I think it's a terrifically important question to try and answer. And so our, our assumption through all these talks is that we go through stages of psychological development, and this will affect how we see things and how we behave. It just does, okay? It w and it will also affect one of the biggest things that can be in our lives sometimes, which is our faith. It just, it just will, okay? Um, and the framework that we use to try and see this more clearly is, is based on the work of a psychiatrist who was also a believer called M. Scott Peck. And, and Peck outlined four stages of development. And by the way, stages of development are nothing new or fancy or dreamed up. They've been kind of in uh, writing and literature forever. Shakespeare had them famously, you know, in the stages and the ages of man. And, um, but when psychology started to become a science, they got really serious about trying to define the stages of development in the human being, right? They, 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 you know, the, the early psychologists wanted to understand why what happens early in life affects you later in life. That's a really healthy thing to try and understand. Psychology has brought much uh, to, to, to our understanding of ourselves, okay? And, and so Peck came up with these four stages of development, and he related them to faith. And he did that based on years of counseling believers and non-believers alike. Um, and, and this is his framework. These are the four stages. I'm just going to go through them again. Charles went through, through them last week, but you, we sort of need to understand them, okay? Stage one is a sort of out-of-control state, okay? It's, it's the toddler, 
It's when we're toddlers, right? You go and you grab whatever you think you, you, you should have. It doesn't, you know, a toddler doesn't respect basic rules or norms. It, it just wants, it needs, and it cries. It has a huge tantrum, a, to- a toddler does, when he or she doesn't get what they want. And by the way, if your toddler behaves like that, that's totally fine. Okay, that's age appropriate. My toddlers were like that to the, you know, cubed. They were very toddlerish, okay? Um, and so don't worry, okay? One's just went to college, you know? Um, and it's tiring. Toddlers are tiring. They drain you. They absolutely sap everything out of you. You think you're the worst parent in the world, but they move out of it, okay? Now, the problem is with stage one is that some people might stay in that stage, okay? Um, not many, okay? Um, and I'm not judging anyone here today. I'm not saying, oh my goodness, you're a terrible person. But it's a fact, I think we can see from looking at you know, people's lives sometimes, that uh, people sort of remain stage one dominant even as they become adults. And that means there's some level of lawlessness going on in their lives. And sometimes they have to cover up, and so they lie a lot. So often stage one people are what we might call sociopaths. Um, and that's why Peck said that uh, a lot of stage one people usually end up in jail. Okay? They, they try and break all the rules and end up, they hit reality and they end up in jail. Or if they're high-functioning stage one people, they might become CEOs. Why would they become CEOs? Because CEOs usually get most of what they want. Um, and that's a very attractive environment. I know one person like this. I've seen many people uh, like this. I, I, I'm a financial journalist. I've covered many scandals on Wall Street. And I've seen you know, stage one CEOs lie, eventually go to jail, and, and, and by the way, we, we shouldn't be too superior about those criminal stage one people because we have to acknowledge that we still have a lot of residual stage one in us often. As Peck himself wrote, I can assure you there exists a stage one Scott Peck who at the first sign of any significant stress is quite tempted to lie and cheat and steal. I keep him well encaged, I hope, in a rather comfortable cell. <laughs> so there is this thing we have to be aware of. This is the out-of-control part of us. And in some people, you know, and we'll talk about if, if you're sort of mostly in that mode later, how to, how to approach things, okay? Stage two is next. In childhood, this is a stage when the rules start to mean something. We recognize the need for order. If we're going to maintain relationships with those around us, the people who are closest to us, rules are part of the game. We learn that. It's an important stage to go through. Uh, we have to go through stage two to get out of stage one, and we need to get that, out of that state because we don't want to end up in that sort of mess that stage one can lead us to, okay? So a stage one adult, for instance, can find much healing by going into stage two. You know, a kid who comes from, you know, a, an adult who came from a chaotic, violent home may join the army and find the structure that he or she never had, and that's very valuable. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that in any way. Um, one of the downsides of stage two is that stage two people, you know, like children who are really into the rules, cannot bear it if other people break the rules, okay? It just drives them crazy. I mean, Peck himself noted that churches were traditionally stage two, um, and they're often places where people come if they find comfort in the rules. They like it where the lines are, are clear and and, um, and, and if you think about it, you know, churches have developed a, a big system, which is very defined with lots of rules, big and small, that, that help you behave on a, you know, uh, they, 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 they claim to help you behave on a daily basis right through all of your life, and they even have very clear rules about how you're supposed to die, 
you know. It's so, it's seamless, you know. It's like there, the rules are just there in a stage two church, okay. Order brings psychological comfort. Um, then comes stage three, which is sort of a late childhood, early adult thing. It's the sort of teenage stage of rebellion. It's the deeply questioning phase. Again, this is absolutely appropriate if you're a parent of a teenager. Um, I have one who's going to be 12, and uh, so that's coming up, and I have one who's 18 who's just gone to college, and this is the sort of thing you hear from your 17 or 18-year-old. Why does it matter if I come home at midnight or 2 a.m.? What is the difference, Dad? That's like on a Wednesday night during, you know, <laughs> during the school year, you know. And so, so there is often this contempt baked into stage three, you know, and, and many adults, including myself, um, are sort of influenced by that sort of rebellious, that sort of sneering kind of like contempt, um, you know, privately or even publicly if we're on Twitter or Facebook, you know. We often think that other people are timid, they're boring, they're conformist, they're plain ignorant, they're just wrong, you know. And uh, stage three people can be just as judgmental as stage two people, I found, okay. Now, stage four, the final stage is kind of where you want to end up. It understands that life is full of things that can't be simply sorted out by applying the rules. Stage four has none of the contempt that stage three has. It's communal rather than individualistic. It actually sees self-righteousness as dangerous, okay? It embraces the utterance from Jesus that Charles looked at last week where, where Jesus says, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. That's, that's a very sort of stage four thing to say. And you know what? Um, I like talking about this stage stuff, as you can probably tell. And the reason I like talking about it is that it really helped me when I was stuck. About 10, 12 years ago, it just dawned on me that, that a lot of my non-believer friends were just all around better at dealing with difficult or, or complicated life situations. They were more at peace with people that weren't like them. They were better able to roll with the challenges of life. And, and what really bugged me was that they were often like um, wiser about how to fix situations th than I was. And this really grated on me because, you know, gosh darn it, I'd been a Christian for like 10 years. And as a result, I should have been way ahead of them, right? But I wasn't. And thankfully, I bumped into Charles and his crew of pirates. And, um, <laughs> and then I somehow stumbled on this stage theory stuff through Charles. And, and it all made sense. I could see what was happening. For years, I was like pinballing between stage two and stage three in my faith. I didn't really know that stage four faith could exist. You know, a faith that doesn't rely on relentless rebellion, all these rigid rules. I could see the real world fruits of being stage four. That, that was clearly present in my friend's life. They were stage four, but I, I, I hadn't understood that you could do faith in that way. And soon I realized I could, and faith became fun again for me. I could be passionate about Jesus and at the same time be part of a church that tries to create space for what life and people are really like, not for what you need them to be. But stage one and stage two is what Charles wanted me to look at today. And, and um, so, uh, <laughs> so that's kind of what I have to do. Um, yeah, it's required. So... I could, have a stage, I could have a stage three tantrum right now, you know, like, or a stage one tantrum, and, you know. Um, so let's go a little bit deeper um, using this passage from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Now, Paul was a leading follower of Jesus um, who, who had a powerful grasp 
um, of what faith in Jesus was and what it wasn't, okay? His letters, uh, some of these letters have been collected in, in the part of the Bible that we call the New Testament. So if you ever want to check them out, please do. They are fantastic. You know, I read Galatians like maybe once a month just to sort of remind me of like what this game is about, okay? And um, in, in Paul's view, following Jesus was something um, that freed up all of humanity to be in a living relationship with God. No longer would the people of faith have to intricately abide by the religious laws that Paul himself had been following zealously for so many years. Those laws which are laid out in what we call you know, the Old Testament were collectively known as the law, okay? And in our passage, Paul inter interestingly calls the law a guardian. It's a guardian that we can now do without, and we can leave this guardian because we'll be in this sort of invigorating kind of uh, relationship with Jesus. So let's look at this passage from Galatians. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Now that, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I love that. Now that this faith has come, okay, we are no longer under a guardian. So what are we under? This is what Paul says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, what's abundantly clear from this passage is that Paul sees a lot happening beyond the law, right? Beyond the rules. It suggests there's this territory out there, this sort of like unbelievable land that we can walk in and um, beyond the law. And, and the way Paul states it, this, this life that we can have beyond the law is, is, is remarkable in, in, in several eye-popping ways. He uses this wonderful soaring language that he often uses, but let's break it down a bit into like, you know, a good BuzzFeed type list, okay? Uh, number one, we are all children of God, right? We are all children of God. Number two, there is no discrimination. We are all one in Jesus, no longer bound by the rules and restrictions that bind or define our people's set. And number three, we inherit this promise that God made thousands of years ago to bless Abraham. That means we are part of God's desire, guys, to bless the world. And how do you gain that? You gain that simply through faith in Jesus. And, and Paul describes that as something that's separate from the, the old ways of, of pursuing religious laws. We basically leave that and we get all this, this wonderful new life. And, I, and in this passage, I have to say there is this strong sense of passing from one stage to another. And this Jesus stage, which we can enter by following Jesus, just sounds so much more promising. It's bigger, it's more inclusive, it's more exciting. Um, in some ways, it's, 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 there's an element of mystery. There's something of the unknown in this. We don't know what's coming next if we take this step. But if we do, we have this promise that it will be good because God is in it. That's very stage four. But there is this other life, the stage one and stage two life that we can lead. And I just wanted to talk about those a little bit, even though I don't want to. 
<laughs> I do really. Um, but let me first say that stage one is hard. I have a lot of sympathy for anyone who's sort of stuck in a stage one existence. I've had times like that in my own life. And it can be a personal hell. And part of the steps that we can take out of stage one often involve intelligent stage two procedures, if you want to call it that. If you want to take a step out of that life, it involves finding structures that you can rely on. It might be strong, loving family members, a good therapist, support groups like AA, you know, solid friends or some ministry in the church. And, and as you take that journey out of stage one into stage two into these, into these sort of like tough love structures, um, there will be a need on, 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 on your part for some sort of core surrender to a good God, a sort of drawing of lines to clearly mark out the things that you, that, that you do that are immediately harmful and problematic. And stage one, the journey out of stage one involves you know, a personal baseline commitment with God to honesty, you know, an end to lying, you know, both to yourself and to other people. And often in stage one, there's addiction. And you'll absolutely have to find well-qualified help there. And if the addiction is hidden, tell the right people. Don't tell somebody you will be immediately hurt by it. And so there is a road out. The structures do exist for you. And the passage we just read from Galatians can be really helpful because it carries so much hope. It says that God will be in your life for the long term. He will never leave your side. And faith is a place where you will always be accepted by God with understanding and where you can gradually, and this is so difficult for stage one people, is that they, the uncertainty that probably existed in their home when they were young freaks them out today and so they you know, try to, to fight everything. But you can gradually become okay with God about the uncertainty and conflicts that, that, that are in your life. And so I can imagine that as this healing journey takes place, there'll be a mixture of stage two and stage four and even <laughs> stage three, and that will all be liberating because Jesus will be in all of those. He will give you the power through the Holy Spirit over time to sort of veer away and to build good habits. And you'll be able to have non-abusive relationships, nourishing relationships. That's your promised land. Jesus died and rose so that you can enter it, okay? That exists for you. Let's go a little bit deeper, okay? I think that one of the things I noticed as I started looking into this, I started reading around different psychologists and their stage theory, and um, much of what happens um, with healing in our lives comes from repairing broken trust. I mean, this applies to all of us, not just stage one people. You know, trust is at the heart of all human relationships. So, you know, a child that grows up in an environment where there is care and intimacy and stability will, will, will learn that human beings can be trusted. They'll, they'll know that so deep within them that they will have this bedrock of trust and that will allow the child to keep developing you know, in a more or less even fashion through the stages of life. And once they reach adulthood and the trials and challenges occur, which they always do, by the way, we will have the sort of emotional and psychological muscles that help us cope. 
So, and that comes from having a basic trust from the earliest stage. But if that trust is not there, uh, the, the instinct is to force us to, to respond in ways which can hold us back. You know, a, a stage one person acts in, in a kind of out of control way because they're basically saying no one can be trusted, right? But our scripture says that, that faith, you know, another word for trust in God is, is open to all of us. And that faith contains a promise of, of an abundant life. I mean, Paul could have written, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, and nor is there stage one and stage two for all you are in Christ Jesus, right? But if you think about it, stage two also has trust issues. You know, looking back at my stage two days, I see now that I didn't have this well-developed ability to deal with the unknowns of life, the uncertainties, the disappointments that came my way. You know, I might pray for myself or someone else, and I wouldn't get the desired result, and that led to an unhealthy level of discontent that might even lead me to blame other people. And, you know, stage two, if you're in it too long, can be a really miserable place because it's a system of belief that tries to control reality. It doesn't have enough trust. So it tries to force this reality, which it doesn't quite trust, into a very tight box. Um, and Eric Erickson, he's a well-known psychologist who explored the link between trust and religion and stages of human development, uh, he also noticed that faith did not necessarily build trust. You could have faith and have no trust. He wrote, there are many who profess faith, yet in practice breathe mistrust both of life and man. And that rang so true to me. If you can't trust life, you try to rein it in. You try to control it. You try to control other people. And reining in usually takes the form of coming up with far more rules than are necessary in life, okay? You know, what I realize as you look back over the, the church history is that, you know, one of the downfalls of the church is it takes these really very specific parts of the Bible, you know, that are quite situational to the time and place, and then it globalizes them into these massive big rules that, like, affect the church for centuries afterwards. It's like, how did you do that? I mean, I know how this happens. You know, rulemaking has this sort of weird appeal. It gives you this power. You know, there's something in us that likes making rules, okay? I don't, I don't just do Pilates, by the way. I, um, <laughs> I also play soccer regularly with these sad middle-aged guys like myself. And um, they're, they're wonderful people, but sometimes we go too far on the playing field and there are occasionally some clashes, let's leave it like that, in the game that, that sort of need addressing afterwards, you know? And so they, you know, sometimes they're so serious um, that they have to go to the disciplinary committee. <laughs> so we have a DC, as we call it. <laughs> and somehow, recently, I got invited onto the DC. And we, um, we've had one case that I, since I've been on it, and there were like 500 emails about this case. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of those emails were about trying to set a precedent for future similar incidents. Okay, and after a while, I realized that I was really enjoying <laughs> the power that comes from crafting a new rule, one that would determine the fate of my, you know, fellow player's future. Not just the one that had done something naughty, but everyone else afterwards, you know. <laughs> now, thankfully, these are good guys, and we tried our hardest to be fair, but I have to admit that making rules is kind of, you know, 
fun. <laughs> and rule crafting is a big part of stage two. And it, it doesn't have to lead to like an actual rule being made because we, we make a lot of rules in our head, don't we? We're just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make a rule, you know. <laughs> and we need to make rules because there's that judgmental side of our character that needs a rule to be able to apply when someone does something that we don't quite like but we need to define what their sin was by making a rule. So we need to make rules to judge people. I've seen a lot, I mean, look, I've done this. And um, here's an example, okay? I, I'm not, this is kind of based on real life, not, but not really. Um, but it will give you an, a, a taste of what could happen in this situation. Let's say your, te- your kid um, has a teacher who has been struggling for some months, okay? And you and the other parents share stories that seem to support the notion that this, this teacher is failing, okay? Um, then it becomes like we need to be able to tell people higher up exactly how they're failing. And then you'd have to have these rules made in your head to be able to define exactly what the, what the failure was. And then it just sort of builds on itself. And it becomes really toxic. And look, guys, I'm not saying that if we have a teacher that appears to be failing your, 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 your kid that you shouldn't say something. But what I am saying is that the stage two rules-based dynamic creates situations where healing and mediation and repair um, is harder to take place. Why not just start the conversation, go up to the teacher and say, hey, I heard something happened in class. Would it be possible to talk about it? There are other ways of doing things where mediation and healing and repair can take place. And I think that stage two and stage three are equally guilty of crowding out the potential for good things to happen. And, and, and yet the Bible tells us, which is interesting, that if we open ourselves up to the mysteries of life and we just sort of like walk into them with God, amazing things can happen. It, it, this is the sort of step that, that leads to this sort of opened-armed, Jesus-focused faith that is so powerful when we practice it. This is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is what I'm talking about. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I didn't pick this scripture because Paul talks about like a stage of development going on from, you know, child to a man or anything like that. I chose this because Paul says something that I'm, I'm touching on here today, is that we only see in part. We only know in part. We only prophesy in part. We do not know everything right now. We are not fully informed. And as a result, the general tilt of our life should be to lean into God, trust Him, trust God that He's up to good things, even when we can't control everything or figure something out, even when we don't like something that's going on, our general tilt should be to trust 
to walk into that uncertainty and saying, yes, God is good and he's going to be doing something about this that is good, that will help everybody involved. And I absolutely love one thing that Paul drops in here, the part that says, even as I am fully known. This is the full sentence. Now I know in part, then, meaning kind of when you meet God completely, then I shall know fully, even as today I am fully known. I find that deeply reassuring. It says to us that today, right now, God sees us with this loving clarity and completeness. Now, Paul is telling us that God sees everything in our lives. That includes all the things that we'd happily talk about, you know, our successes, our good deeds, the characteristics in us that people like, you know, the the good times we've had. Um, But it also includes all our struggles and our doubts and our missteps. And to me, the fully in this sentence means that God also sees beneath the things that we do. He sees into the deepest inner regions of our mind and soul and what shaped all of that. And that's really important because what it tells me is he knows exactly why I have stage one impulses, why I sometimes resort to rigid rules, why I often have the contempt of a teenager, and why even today, you know, I get so much out of a vibrant, open-armed faith in Jesus. He sees all of that. He knows what drives it. He can see the undercurrents. And that means I, I just love being known like that because I can go to him with anything at that point. I can say, go wherever you like, Holy Spirit. If you need to heal that, then please just go. You can see it. You know what you're doing. So we're fully known by a loving God. You know, a God who sent his son to to die for us. And he can take everything that's in there, the good and the bad, and use it for good. And that, to me, is good news. So here are some practical suggestions. We always put practical suggestions on the end of our sermons to sort of help you sort of live this out day to day. Um, And this is what I'm going to do now, okay? So number one, try to understand deeply what frightens you, okay? You know, a lot of the excesses that come from stage one or stage two behavior have to do with fear, okay? Stage one, people are afraid of a lot of things, um, you know, just anything that seems like a threat. And stage stage two, people are afraid of the uncertainty that the rules can't address. That freaks them out. Now, the problem with fear is that it escalates very quickly, okay? It can be whipped up very easily. Um, I once asked a former chairman of the Federal Reserve why why the Fed was always so quick to pour money into the markets when the markets fell a lot. But they were always much slower to act when the markets were going up perhaps too quickly, right? And he said to me very curtly, fear is stronger than greed. And what he meant is that fear can lead people to act rashly, very rapidly. I'm still working out whether he was right and greed does the same thing, but, you know, talk to me afterwards. Um, And there's a lot of fear in the country right now. You know, politicians have made great use of fear to stir up voters over the years. It's a really demagogic trick. Shouldn't be done. Going back to Colin Kaepernick. People are so angry about what he did. You know, and a lot of that comes from fear. Fear that the country's in decline. Fear that the values of this country was built on are crumbling. Fear that, you know, black people's radicalism, if you want to call it that, will hurt the nation. But who wants to be driven by fear? It always leads to bad outcomes, except like, you know, when there's like, you know, 
a dog chasing you, then maybe you should be a little bit fearful. But like, <laughs> fear 99.9% .9 of the time leads to bad outcomes, okay? And then we have this loving God who's going to be with us through everything. So, so why are we so fearful? It doesn't make any sense. So we should try and work out with God, you know, sit there with a cup of coffee and the Bible and say, look, this is really frightening me. I don't know why I'm so frightened about this God, but please help me understand it. He knows us fully. He knows why you fear this. He can see it right now. And Jesus can lead us out of those fears. Number two, consider making yourself more available. Okay, we've done a lot of theory today. Um, and if you're like me, you have so much theory, and you're like, okay, enough, enough, enough. I need to see if this works, okay? And we need to put these theories to work somehow, I think, sometimes. And one way to do that with this stage theory is to get out of our silos sometimes. You know what a silo is? It's kind of like a Wall Street word now, unfortunately, which means like, you know, you stay in these narrow channels. And it's very easy to do in New York City life. We work hard, and so we go out and play hard. And as we do that over a number of years, our lives become increasingly narrow. We start hanging out with exactly the same people. And it's usually not a, a, environments where we can really open up. And look, I get it. It's fun. It's, it's fun to work hard, to earn money, go out and spend it, look after your kids, see your kids do well, you know, be on top of things. You know, it, it's a good life in many ways. But how often do we stop and say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of in a silo. I need to make myself more available. I feel this a lot, God prompting me in this way a lot. Be, be more of a source of support to others. Maybe people you don't hang out with all the time. And being in my silo, I, I, I sort of often lead myself to think, you know, I'm a, I'm a stage four sophisticat, you know. <laughs> But am I? Am I? How often am I challenged in such a way that would test whether my faith is, like, open-armed? So I should, you know, I'm not saying that we should become, like, you know, the departmental therapist at work or in your dormitory or whatever, you know. Don't go beyond what you can manage and boundaries, boundaries, boundaries and everything like that. But, like... When you get that prompting, be more available. Invite someone out to coffee. Go and hang out. Do breakfast, whatever. And talk to people and listen. And see, you know, as things happen, you'll get a sense that, like, you know what? I can be a help. Jesus, I can help people understand how Jesus can help. It's like the wonderful part of the adventure of life. Okay, number three. Pray for big things, okay? Um baseline assertion here. When we have Jesus in our lives, at a fundamental level, we are not bound by where we came from anymore. So like, all this stuff I said about stage theory, it, it's not going to be, you don't have to live under it for the rest of your lives, okay? You can escape it in a good way. It's wise, it helps us see things, but we're not always going to be stage two, is my point, or stage three. Because our lives are being and our identities are being formed by him daily. You know, the Bible says we can become more like him. And as you get older, like I'm in middle age now, um, you realize this is really important. I mean, you sort of pay lip service to it when you're young. You're like, yeah, I want you know, the, to be more like Jesus, and I'm sure that's very sincere, and, 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 and a lot of you are. But um, 
<laughs> but when you get to like my age and you've sort of done a, many of the things that you always wanted to do and you've chased after them and you've gotten most of them and you look at like, you know, what's really valuable? It's that day-to-day -day adventure of faith, letting Jesus shape you. That's the really like exciting thing. Like, wow, I get, it doesn't matter what my job is now. I get up, to, I mean, kind of does, but like it, <laughs> it, increasing, you're like, I just get to get up in the morning and have this kind of day of adventure with Jesus. And a big part of that is the opportunity to pray for big things to happen. That's like really fun. And that can help anyone, no matter where they are, you know. <laughs> Praying for big things has this sort of power to like take people out of stage one. It, it, it sort of loosens the rules for stage two people and it erodes the contempt in stage three people. And this, you know, just pray for big things to happen. It's not supposed to be guilt-inducing. Don't, don't sort of be like, oh, I prayed for this and it didn't happen and therefore I have to really work out why. That's just exhausting. Paul said we only know things in part. We don't know why it doesn't happen. But that's a green light to just go ahead and keep praying, right? So let's keep praying for big things to happen. Let's dive into that. Our prayer team is at the back. Its engines are warmed up, aren't they? Yeah? yeah. <laughs> They're ready to pray for big things, okay? All right, I'm done. Thanks. <laughs>